Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises he kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Have you ever been invited to try something that will, quote, unquote, change your life? I'm sure that as you watched uh, football this week or any of the Christmas stuff that came on after uh, Thursday, any of, the, any of the shows on television this week, you were immediately confronted with marketers, commercials, selling you things, people inviting you, products inviting you into the good life saying, if you have this, you will be satisfied. So whether it's a, a soft drink or whether it's some fashion item or whether it's some bit of new technology that's really old technology or, or whatever it is, maybe it's that brand new car, whatever it could be, you were told, if you have this, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. Your needs will be met. And, and if you don't have that thing, then you also recognize the reality, uh, the other way around, that, that life is empty without it. Life is disappointing. It's of, it's of no good. That's what the best marketers do. They, they create necessity within your heart and within your life for something you didn't even know you needed. The problem is we're never really fulfilled. We're, we're never really satisfied and happy about it. I have proof, actual annual proof that this is the case. It's because all of us are upgrading our phones every year. We're not satisfied with the one that just came out like nine months ago. Got to have another one. Got to have a better one. Got to have one with a better camera. Whatever it is, we're never truly, fully satisfied and happy. So you know what happens? Skepticism creeps in. We, we heard the promise, your life will be fulfilled with this. And we, we bought the product. And, and maybe for a couple days, life felt good. It, it seemed like we could get along with it and, and go that way. But... You know what? It just didn't de deliver on ultimate happiness and, and joy. I'm going to switch this one on. <laughs> and so what? You know what? Skepticism creeps in. This, this distrust, and it bleeds over into every area of our lives. Every area of our lives in which big promises are made, this, this reality creeps in that we don't trust anybody anymore. So whether it's the promises that politicians make or the promises that the entertainment industry makes, or the promises that fashion makes, or the promises that technology makes, or, or even if it's the promises that faith itself makes. Nobody is wanting to believe them anymore. And, and if we're honest here today, we struggle with God's promises. The things that He said, we, we actually wonder if they're really going to be true. We, we have this bit of caution with God. Will God actually bring into reality the things that he said he would? When the Bible talks about the promises of God, the good things of God, we look and we even say, hey, it's been 2,022 years. What's holding them up? Where are these promises? 
This is what the season of Advent is for. It's for us to build a capacity, build an ability even, to wait. It's, it's a time for us to build a season of anticipation into our lives. That's why the, the church marks today, the first Sunday of Advent, as the start of, of the season of waiting and anticipating so that when, when Christmas Day actually drops, we're ready. Our hearts go, yes, all that we long for and desired and waited, it's here, waited for is here in Christ. Eagerness, anticipation builds when we wait on God's promises. So in, so in this Advent season, this year in 2022, I want to help us build that capacity for waiting. I want to help us build that anticipation and that growing eagerness. And to do that, I want us to focus in on the very center of where all of God's promises find fulfillment. Where, where is the exact location of every promise of God being yes? And I'm not going to be clever uh, here over the next four weeks. I'm not going to just kind of lay out one piece of the puzzle at a time or, or slowly uh, make what is unclear very clearly. I'm going to lay all my cards on the table right now. Here's where the center of God's promises find fulfillment. The scripture says this. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. All of the promises of God find their yes or their fulfillment in Him, in Christ. Every promise of God finds its yes, its fulfillment, its completion, its totality in Jesus Christ. And it is through Christ, through the fulfillment of God's promises in Him, that our deepest longings, our greatest desires, our hopes, our aspirations, our desires are truly and ultimately met. And you might say, oh wait, you sound like one of those marketers. Big promises, all met in Christ. And you might go, ah. Really? I don't know. I don't know. But over the next four Sundays, I want to take us, and then on Christmas Eve as well, I want to look at the core longings of our hearts. What are those, what are those things that humanity deeply desires that, that, that if we would have, we would be fulfilled? I want us to look at those core desires, and I want us to see how Jesus, in his coming as a human, as a baby, meets and fulfills within himself every single one of those desires. And then on Christmas Day, I'll talk about how we can get in on those promises. That won't be a secret either. So we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to spend our time in the next four weeks, five weeks, in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is brilliant in telling us the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. It's, it sets up the whole reality as well. Matthew is writing predominantly to a Jewish audience, but his audience expands beyond just the Jewish community. He wants to speak to us even today, which is why he translates Hebrew terms. He speaks about things, but Matthew is writing to show us the reality of Jesus as God's King, God's coming Messiah, who's come to seek and to save sinners. And in Matthew's gospel, in this telling of the birth of Jesus Christ, he does something I find really interesting. Matthew anchors what he says, not just in history, but he anchors what he says on the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. So Matthew will go back to Old Testament prophets, guys like Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah, and he'll say, that prophet said this, and that prophecy there, which was said hundreds of years prior, it's true in Jesus. Jesus fulfills this. And, and so in taking each of these prophecies, Matthew is doing a couple things. One, he sh- one, he's showing us Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. But true, two, he's showing us God keeps his word. 
You can trust the Bible because Jesus fulfills these very things. You can stand with firm faith on what Scripture says because in Christ these promises are fulfilled. And so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to take one of these prophecies that Matthew pulls out and we're going to look at it. And we're going to see what is Matthew drawing our attention to about who Jesus is and how he fulfills this promise of God. They're really, these prophecies speak to the longings of our hearts. So let's go for the first one here. And we're going to start with Matthew's beginning of the, the story of Jesus Christ and how he came to us. And the first longing that, that Matthew identifies here that he wants us to see is the core desire of presence. No, 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 no. Not the, not the core desire of presence like under the tree presence, but like being in the room with presence. We are not built to be alone. We're not built to be on our own, to be isolated or separated. Loneliness has all kinds of adverse effects in our life. Uh, one WebMD article that I read states that loneliness has a few uh, just really difficult things that it does to the body. First of all, loneliness triggers the stress hormone uh, cortisol in your body that can raise and fuel anxiety and depression. The more you're alone, the more that, that hormone rises and the more depressed and the more anxious you feel. Uh, furthermore, loneliness will produce poor brain function and that can accelerate dementia. It slows you down and, and dementia can be accelerated through, old, uh, through, through loneliness. Uh, furthermore, Loneliness can age a person faster and create a risk of early death. That's why it's so dangerous for an elderly person to live and to be on their own. These things just accelerate that. One study done by UCLA took some individuals and they, they put them into an experiment. And the experiment was basically this. They wanted to see what does the brain say about what your body feels when it's lonely. And so they put these subjects into a video game. They told them, you're going to play a video game with four or five other human beings, except there weren't four or five other human beings playing the game with them. They were computer-generated simulations, or AI, playing with them. The AI was programmed to isolate and to uh, exclude the human individual who was playing the game so that the player would feel lonely, not accepted, abandoned, and what they found as they were measuring the, the, the brain's functions in that was that the brain tells your body the same thing it tells your body when it's being hurt physically. If you're being cut with a knife, your brain sends out a certain signal. And when you're lonely, when you're isolated or excluded, the brain sends the exact same signal. Loneliness is similar to physical pain. We need and desire presence. We need and desire human presence, one another. If you need any evidence of that, the lockdown over COVID showed how much we need one another. Relational separation are no, is not good for human beings. Yet, if we can be honest here, relational presence, being with others, is often very transient. What could be a good and healthy relationship today may sour and become tense and, and estranged. I mean, we, we may have in our lives a merry-go-round of relationships of people that enter and exit our lives, and so presence with others feels elusive. It feels evasive. What if I could tell you this morning that you could have a relationship that was truly solid, that was truly unbreakable, 
that was truly secure, that was never going to dissolve, never going to evaporate. It was filled with peace and grace and happiness and joy forever and ever and ever. There's the big promise, right? You'd probably be like, eh, I don't know. But you want it. You want a relationship that's truly intimate, that's satisfying, to know that you'll never be abandoned or left alone. And because you want it, that's the longing that our heart reveals. And that's the longing that Jesus himself fills. It's the core desire that he meets in himself. In his coming and becoming a human for you and for me, he steps into that need for presence. Matthew, in quoting one of these ancient Hebrew prophets, he quotes Isaiah, he uses this text of Isaiah to tell us that Jesus' coming is a fulfillment of God's promises, and one of these promises very specifically. The promise that he fulfilled is a promise that God gave of presence with us, to be with us. Look at verse 22 of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew says, all of this took place. And I'll explain what all of this means in just a moment. He says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The prophet's words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means, Matthew translates this term for us, God with us. The identification of this one, Emmanuel, this person, this this child, this son, born of a virgin... His life, his, his coming for us is evidence of God with us. His, his presence is God with us. God invites us this morning into considering the story of his eternal son and the meaning that that story has for our lives. And here's the meaning of what that story has for our lives. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. In Jesus, God comes to be with us. He meets that deep longing of our hearts. This has massive application for how we live and how we relate to God and how we understand Him. I'm not not fudging it in any way when I say this is truly a promise that will change our lives. But okay, we're we're a room full of skeptics here this morning. How do we know this is true? How can we be assured that Jesus is actually God come to be with us? Well, Matthew builds the identification of Jesus as Emmanuel, that title, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew builds that on the basis of two signs that Jesus' birth fulfills in the promises that God made. When you look at Isaiah's prophecy here, what God spoke, Jesus, there's two signs in that prophecy that Jesus fulfills in his coming. This prophecy, Isaiah is, uh, what Matthew quotes here is Isaiah 7.14. And it was probably spoken around 735 B.C. Isaiah, God through Isaiah, speaks this prophecy, this word, to Ahaz, the king, who is not believing God's word, not believing God's promises, not trusting God. And God says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Here it is. A virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. And in Isaiah chapter 7 through chapter 9, God spells out and displays the, the, the near fulfillment in Isaiah's day of that prophecy but also points forward to Christ, showing him to be the king, the coming one. And so this prophecy has deep meaning for us. And Jesus fulfills the signs that are given there. The two signs in Isaiah's text that Jesus' birth fulfills 
are, first of all, the sign of the virgin conception. So this is the first one we'll look at here that demonstrates God's answer for our need for presence. The virgin conception is sign number one that Jesus is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what does this mean when we talk about the virgin conception? Here's where Matthew directs us to see how Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin woman. Go back with me to verse 18 to get the, all these things took place. What took place? Matthew writes it this way. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Here's what happened. Here's the infancy story of our hero, Jesus Christ, and what, what occurred. Matthew writes, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, don't rush over that verse here because it's very helpful for us to see what Jesus was fulfilling, His coming, how it fulfilled prophecy. And Matthew is taking deep effort, great pains to, to clearly tell us Mary was absolutely a virgin. There, there's no other way that this could have happened, that she was truly who God said she would be and that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. And Matthew, in this one verse, he points out three things that demonstrates Mary's clear virginity. First of all, she was the statement, she was betrothed to Joseph. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that, was she, that is that she was engaged to Joseph for marriage by a covenant agreement. Betrothal in that day was maybe similar in our minds to engagement, but it had a whole lot more meaning. It was more involved. It was, it was much deeper. More than just exchanging or giving a ring and saying a promise and setting a date, betrothal involved uh, a whole lot of other things. First of all, the couple was pledged to each other. There was a, a ceremony that went along with it to say, you too, we will commit ourselves to one another, as if they were taking vows already between one another, saying, my life for yours, your life for mine. They were considered husband and wife. The expectation was that they would not legally, not physically join together in marriage and in intimacy, but that they would be chaste until their wedding ceremony and that they would be faithful to each other. There was this, a period of at least a year where they were betrothed but not married, committed to one another, in covenant with one another, but the symbol of that union and sexuality had not been experienced. Furthermore, a betrothal to break it involved a formal divorce. It was that serious and it was that involved. So when Matthew says that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, he is saying that this couple has done everything. They have set up their lives and set up their relationship in such a way that there is no sexual intimacy and she is, her virginity is intact. She's chaste. And so she can be who God has promised to be. Not only that, but Matthew goes on to say a second statement here in this verse that demonstrates his, his efforts to show that she is truly a virgin. States, he says that before they came together. Again, he's, just, he's explicitly putting it out there. They've had no intimacy together. There's been no breaking of, of their covenant vows. There's chastity and fidelity to each other. Furthermore, then, he says, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I think the Greek construction of this literally is a little bit more clear and helpful. Scripture says, the Greek terms say this, that she was found to have in her womb from the Holy Spirit. She was found to have in her womb from the Holy Spirit. The developing child in her womb came from the Holy Spirit of God. 
The angel in Luke's gospel that, that announces this declares that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. That, that infant conceived in her womb was not through normal human sexual relationships that produce human children. No, this person, this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit, from the Holy Spirit, without sexual intimacy. Matthew, in those three phrases, just builds the case that, that takes away any doubt that Mary is a virgin. And he even takes it one step farther. We, we get the, the vantage point from Mary here in verse 18. But Matthew then goes to illustrate from Joseph's perspective, and his responses show us that this is from God. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He thinks she's been unfaithful. She's pregnant. She has a child, and he's, he's ready to walk away. He's ready to divorce her. He doesn't want to put her to shame, but he's, he's in his heart ready to divorce her and separate And Scripture says, as he considered these things, as he weighed them out, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph gets a direct message from from God through an angel saying, she's a virgin. You can take her as your wife. You should. That which is in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Matthew take all this effort to tell us this? I mean, why does he build phrase upon phrase, perspective upon perspective, to help us see these things? Verse 22, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The virgin will conceive. If Jesus is not the one who was prophesied to be born of a virgin then, friends, we should not follow him. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, we shouldn't be confident that God is truly faithful to his promises. If Jesus has not been the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, then the entire validity of the New Testament and what the Christian faith is built upon is a fable. It's a farce. And I'm wasting your time. Furthermore, I'm wasting my life by telling you about it and preaching Christ to you. But if Jesus is the one who is born of a virgin, if this is true of him, then we have an absolutely clear and definitive signal from God that he has stepped into human history. God is with us. If Jesus is born of a virgin, then God has overthrown the natural way of producing a child and done something absolutely unique and miraculous to redeem his creatures. If the promise that God made through Isaiah nearly 735 years prior came true in this child, Jesus' birth, then he is the Messiah. And we better pay attention. We better draw close. Friends, we have every encouragement to believe and trust and be grateful for Jesus. I know some of you might say, well, like, is the virgin birth really that critical to the Christian faith? One father of deconstruction, I'll call him that, has written a book, and he, he decided that the virgin birth is a brick in the wall of Christianity that you could remove and the wall would stay up. You could just take the virgin birth out of Christianity and nothing would collapse. You, you wouldn't need it. But I would contend you don't have Christianity without the virgin birth. Because if if God is not speaking the truth here, if Matthew is not speaking the truth here, where can we trust God's word? 
We can't depend on it at all. That's why the creeds contain the statement that is essential and fundamental to orthodox theology. You cannot have Christianity without the virgin birth. And so the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It's a signal to us, it's a sign to us, God keeps his promises. God is with us. God is faithful. He is drawn close. This sign of the virgin birth points to Jesus being God who has come to to be near and close. Jesus has come to restore the relationship that was broken by our sin. God with us comes to draw near to us. And the sign of the virgin birth points to him as the one who fulfills that. That's not true. Let's do something else. But if it is true, we better lean in close because God is with us. The first sign that's here is the sign of the virgin conceiving. But don't miss Isaiah's second sign. There's another sign in this prophecy that Matthew points out that demonstrates Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel, and that is that he has born a son, the birth of a son is the second sign. So Matthew quoting Isaiah, speaking from the Holy Spirit, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second sign is the birth of a boy, a son. Now, this this might not appear too dramatic to us. The first sign, a virgin conceiving, that's pretty impressive, but 50% of us are boys, right? Like children are born and sons are born all the time. But this prophecy, the detail of this prophecy is specific, not just of a specific gender, but of who that gender is. Now, here's why this is important on a couple levels. First of all, no parent gets to choose the gender of their child in the womb. Gender is a God-given designation. God decides in the womb, male or female. So if the child in Mary's womb isn't a boy, then the child isn't the Messiah. God's not keeping his promises. He's got a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. If Mary conceives and she bears a daughter, the promise is that's not Mary. That's not the right one. But if the child is a boy, and Jesus was, then we have a powerful provision and declaration from God of exactly who this child is. Emmanuel, God with us. But on another level, further deeper, the promise of a son reaches all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. All the way back to Genesis 3. You may remember that that story when Adam and Eve are in the garden and in the garden of paradise and God tells them, don't eat of this one tree. And, And the serpent, Satan, comes along and he deceives Eve and Adam willfully disobeys and he takes and eats. And so God comes in his presence into the garden in the cool of the day and he says, where are you guys? And they're hiding, there's separation, there's estrangement. And finally they come out of the bushes and God says, what have you done? And Adam says, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. And Eve points the finger and says, the serpent deceived. And so God speaks to the serpent and he curses the serpent. And then he says this of the serpent. I or between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, a son, he shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. The gender of this one promised is one of a singular male who will crush the head of our enemy, the serpent, Satan. 
Furthermore, if you keep going through the Old Testament scriptures to Isaiah's passage here in Isaiah 7.14, this, this comes in a larger segment of scripture where Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz about this coming son, this one who will be Emmanuel, and he describes him in chapter 9 in this way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The expectation of this child isn't just that he would be some normal, ordinary human boy, but that this son would be the promised king who would sit on the throne of David and be the royal ruler forever and ever. This royal ruler is described as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. All of these royal titles, all of these titles of divinity, the title is there, the son being born is one that would indicate the son is truly God. And he is God with us. And this is what Matthew affirms in his narrative, in his telling. The angel comes and he speaks to Joseph and he says, Don't be afraid to take Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And he says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name the angel tells Joseph to bestow upon this boy is so important. A son named Jesus, or Joshua in Hebrew, which translated means Yahweh, God, saves. Because he will come to save his people from their sins. And that's exactly what Joseph does. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, remember he was in a dream, he did what the angel commanded him to do, took Mary as his wife, but knew her not. He didn't have intimacy with her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph bestowed the name of Jesus upon this child as an act of adoption, of identifying him as his son. And in that identification, Jesus stands as, a, as an heir in the line of King David. As Joseph was in the line of King David... So now his son, Jesus, stands in the line of King David. He is the son who will sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever, fulfilling God's promises. I mean, there's so much prophecy just laid out in this passage here, and Jesus is just checking all the boxes. Born of a virgin, born a son, a king to sit on the throne forever and ever, one who is God with us. So friends, what does this mean for us? It all comes down to what we really believe about Jesus. These, these signs are here to point us to him, to point us to the truth of what God is doing, and to, to tell us, to teach us, and to invite us into faith, to trusting him for who he says he is. So, so will we look at these signs? Will you, will you see them and conclude that he is the one sent from the Father to rescue and to restore and to rule over his creation forever and ever? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who came, the only one who came to save his people from their sins? There's an interesting invitation and really an adjustment that Matthew makes to Isaiah's prophecy. 
He wants us in on this. Isaiah said it like this, Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It looks like this picture of a, a woman bearing, giving birth to a child and, and her saying, Emmanuel. But, but listen to how Matthew writes it, how he quotes it. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. One word there, they. Well, who's the they? Who's that involve? Matthew invites us in. And he says it to anybody who recognizes Jesus as the Son of God. It's, it's anybody who would see Jesus for who he promised to be. Emmanuel, God with us. If you, if you would confess Jesus is Lord, if you would confess that he is God, come to be with us. That they is you and me. We're the ones who are saved from our sins by Jesus. We're the ones who Jesus invites in and says, I've come to dwell with you. God with us. God with you to love you. God with you to rescue you. God with you to redeem you. God with you to reconcile you to himself. God with you to be with you forever and ever and ever. For anyone to say Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It is to recognize for who, him for who he is and to believe in him. Do you believe in him? prophecy of 735 B.C. stands over Jesus. And Jesus comes and he fulfills it in every way. So to be the one who is God with us. So to be the one who has come to save his people from their sins. And he says, that's, that's for you. You want in? Do you want in? Do you want, do you want to be saved and rescued? Do you want eternal presence with God forever? Do you want the unbreakable joy and harmony and happiness of a relationship that cannot be dissolved, that cannot be estranged? It's there in Jesus. And the invitation is, come on in. Believe Him. Call on Him as your Lord and Savior. Turn from your sin and come to Christ. I know we today say, okay, that's good news, but it doesn't always feel like God is there. And yet Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit for us, but we stand in a period of, yes, already he is with us, but we also wait. There is a sense in the trouble of our hearts where we say, where, where is he? And so we wait the day that's not yet here, and it's what Advent points us to of the day when he does return and come again. And as, as the scripture says at the very end of the book, Revelation 21, the day is coming when we hear from the throne of God himself saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. As their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, 
I am making all things new. That day, friends, is coming. And so today we have the promise of Jesus, God with us. And it builds the anticipation and the waiting and the trust and the faith for the day when it is fully realized that we see him face to face and are embraced by him completely as God with us. Jesus said who is who he said he is. If his birth happened as scripture says it did. And what that means is you are not abandoned or alone. In Jesus Christ, God is with you forever. And that's truly something that will change your life. Anybody can get in on it. So come to Jesus. Trust him. Bank your life on his promises. He will not let your desire for presence be left unfulfilled. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.